Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Not If I Reboot You First, the podcast where we take popular properties and reboot them before Hollywood has the chance to. I'm Lindsay. I'm Tanner, and it is we've got several occasions going on on this episode. First off, it's part two of Tanner's sickness journey. Oh no. Where I've, I'm better than yesterday, but I've, I'm still oozing with fluids. Still a mucus monster. Yes. I mean, to, to a certain degree, all humans would like to have oozing. That's what separates us from the machines. <laughs> yeah. But too much oozing. Never good. Find that good ooze-to-meat ratio. <laughs> um, it's also, this episode's going to come out on my birthday. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. I still got to pick out something for you. I still got to tell people, hey, maybe we should do something for my birthday. <laughs> Look, When this episode comes out, I will update the Twitter on whether I had a birthday celebration or not. <laughs> well, as we get older, the birthday celebrations kind of just steadily go down in importance. I, I heavily hinted that I'd be totally cool if they did a surprise party for me, but I also point out the fact that it'd be really hard for them to do a surprise party for me because I'd know all the tricks. You're usually the one who plans them. Yeah, well, not usually. I've only done one. <laughs> but you got my brother good. I got him good. I made him cry, <laughs> which means I win birthdays forever. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, did you guess my hint in the 24 hours since we last recorded? No, no, I didn't. I failed. Okay, that's fine. Uh, today, well, actually, today's going to be kind of weird because this is... The closest I got to creating a movie from whole cloth so far is Underworld, but this I am truly taking a franchise and just making a new installment for it. Okay. Um, I am making a prequel to the Ocean's Eleven series. Ooh. Okay. So, so that's we are going back to the 80s. Actually, I think we're going back to 1980, if my math was good. Awesome. Because I was looking up the main uh, setting decisions came from the fact that I was looking for the birth dates of various actors involved in the franchise. Yeah. And where are you, Clooney? There you are. Mm. Clooney was born in 61, so he would be 19 in 1980. Okay. And so I'm going to assume that uh, Danny Ocean is the same age as George Clooney. Yeah. And the other key players are kind of around there because I made I made notes. I bought a little <laughs> notepad and I was making notes at work today. <laughs> nice. So this, and I'm calling this because we still want to follow the numerical theme naming. So this one is called Oceans First because this yep. is the birth of Danny and Debbie's first heist. Because I, part of this is born out of Oceans 8, which I enjoyed it. But I know it left a lot of people wanting, and I totally get that, because the big twist was telegraphed like from the start of the promotional materials. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, minor spoilers, but their whole heist to get the necklace, and then like the twist secret heist that you know there is going to be, they all go off completely without a hitch. And yeah. like, good for them, but I like it when in the other Oceans movies, they have to, like, something goes wrong, and they have yeah. to plan on the fly, and they have to change stuff as they go along. Like, things go wrong in 11, 12, and 13. 12 is nothing but things going yeah. wrong. Yeah, like, they're way more fun when it's like, oh, crap, shit has hit the fan because Murphy's Law. Yeah. Yeah, I, I spent that entire, the entire heist sequence in the movie waiting for something to go wrong with them stealing the necklace off Anne Hathaway. And no, it just, it was smooth sailing the entire time. I'm like, where's, where's the trip up? Where's the slip? Where's someone noticing you're not supposed to be there? Yeah. I've watched enough prison escape stuff that it's a similar plot point too, where it's like at some point something goes wrong. Yeah. Maybe like right off the bat, something goes wrong. Boring invincible hero yeah. is boring. Yeah. And, and also that's because... It works like that, and then they have that old, like, twist going on. Did you see Ocean's 8? No, I didn't get around to it. Did you read the Wikipedia summary page for it at some point? <laughs> that was amazingly a movie I managed to avoid. Not because I didn't want to see it, but because... Well, my big thing with movie spoilers, it's more like I don't want to go into a movie with 
a reviewer's preconceived opinions. That makes sense. Yeah. But um, yeah, you don't need to, you actually know, need to know the plot of Ocean's 8 for this one. Yeah. For my shtick. I was just trying to like give some background on why Ocean's 8 was a little bit disappointing because like the, the way it ends up working, it's like there's two second acts and then the third act is only five minutes long. Oh. Yeah. So it's like, it's got some funky pacing. Yeah. But yeah, but one thing I really did like amongst many things in Ocean's 8 is that along with meeting Debbie, who is Danny's sister, we also hear some stuff about their family history, how like their dad was also a career criminal. The entire Ocean extended family is made up of career criminals, except for like one aunt in Connecticut. who's <laughs> a baker. <laughs> oh, come on. She's got like a drug smuggling ring going on or something. No, she doesn't have an illegal bone in her body. <laughs> I can't imagine that. She's got to be putting, like, weed into the brownies. (laughs) That's why they're so good. (laughs) Gives them to all the moms at the PTA meeting. Yep. (laughs) Oh, no, it's Allison. It's Allison from Orphan Black. She's the lost ocean cousin. (laughs) Um... But yeah, so that got me thinking of this idea of a movie that it was a prequel, and it could even start a whole prequel trilogy of like Ocean's First, so can Ocean's Second, Ocean's Third, but specifically just Ocean's First, where Danny and Debbie and some of their associates that we've come to know, they pull off their first big heist as teens or as young adults, and the goal of the heist is to help get Daddy Ocean out of prison. I'm not going to call him Daddy Ocean. Well, okay, I might end up calling him Daddy Ocean, (laughs) but I did name him Derek. It's in the notes. (laughs) Okay, so they all have a thing for D names. They all have D names. So their mom's probably Delilah Ocean. Yeah. But I don't have a mom written in here at all. Oh, okay. Okay, well, there can be a throwaway line about how... Okay, the thing is with this plot, having too many... adult authority figures yeah. or not necessarily authority figures but like their peers having grown-ups helping them out is going to kind of take away from yeah. the thrill of it because yeah, it's it, going to be it's the teens yeah, it's teens it, pulling off a heist <laughs> this is going to be the um the heist movie version of riverdale where the teens run everything yes well actually i did another thing that gave me the idea to do this was i suddenly remembered the existence of the movie catch that kid oh yeah i remember seeing the trailers for it i don't remember if i ever saw it i might have gone on to the um ytv at some point if i remember correctly the dialogue was probably hokey as all hell yeah um but the movie itself was pretty good because like the kids are they're good at what they do. They have to break into this high-tech vault and the it's very much a breaking bad type situation where the main girl played by Kristen Stewart oh, wow. is breaking in to steal money to pay for her father's operation. Okay, yeah. Th- this was before the era of GoFundMe, so she had to rob a high-tech bank. Yeah. But like there's uh, there's a really good scene at the end because her and her dad like they're mountain climbers in their spare time. Okay. And so like the dad's talking about like his greatest achievement was when he climbed a mountain without any gear because there was this perfect crack just going up to the top of the mountain that he could just clamber up. And so in the heist scene, like to get to the vault, it's like suspended 10 feet, 10 stories in the air. And they try to, she tries to climb up using the safety deposit boxes that are all around it, but she can't get all the way up. And so then she sees like this little divot in going into the wall and she's like the perfect crack. And so she climbs up it with her bare hands and she jumps onto the vault and then she like gets the money and they escape. And then there's like a chase scene with like drag racers that are whipped together, like some kind of little rascals style devices. Oh my God. It was it was a solid movie if I remember correctly. Okay, I I might look that up because as I said, I just remember seeing the trailers. It was like it's like a more grounded Spy Kids. Yeah. <laughs> Even though Spy Kids is glorious. Spy Kids. Oh, I we need to add that to the list. <laughs> Hang on, I need to find a pen. <laughs> I need to find a pen that works. <laughs> I have weird fancy pens where it's like, you have to look at them the right way for the (laughs) righty bit to pop out. This is garbage pen. Here we go. Normal pen. Good on you. Normal pen says, what what did we say? Spy kids. Yeah, spy kids. There. Thank you, normal pen. (laughs) Anyways. um, Okay, so Ocean's First. 
It begins right around 1980. I don't know the specific times, but 1980 works well. We've got Danny, who's just out of high school, and we're going to say the... I'm not sure the specific ages. I know that Debbie is going to still be in high school. Yeah. And then amongst them, we've also... And, like, the main four characters are... Oh, probably... No, it's going to be six, I guess. Seven. <laughs> we have seven teens. Seven key teens. <laughs> So we have Danny and Debbie Ocean. Yes. And Debbie is Danny's younger sister by like two years, I'm going to say. So she's yeah. still in high school. Yeah. Uh, then we've got Rusty, who yeah. is Brad Pitt's character. Yeah. And he's Danny's right-hand man. Uh, we have Lou, who was Kate Blanchett's character. Yeah. And she's basically Debbie's Rusty. Yeah. Uh, except they're totally dating. Oh, because yeah. every scene they're together in, in that movie gives off a powerful sapphic energy. Yep. And there's probably going to be a line where someone's like, ask Danny, like, hey, I thought you were dating Rusty. And they're both going to be like, no, I can do so much better. And then they just give each other a look. Yeah. Because <laughs> listen, we're going to pack every single one of these reboots just full of bicons. Yes. Um, then we've also got Basher is going to show up. Of course. Um, that's Don Cheadle's character. Yes. Because I was going through the list trying to find people who it would make sense for them to know, but were also around the same age. Yeah. So, like, the Malloys are out because they'd be too young. Yeah. Linus is definitely out. Yeah. Um, actually, I did write in that the Malloys could have, like, a cameo as just some twins that show up at a family gathering or something. Yeah. And they're fighting the entire time. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it's like, they don't even have to say, oh, look, it's the Malloy twins. We just have to show two siblings fighting. And it's like, oh, yeah, we know them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then we're also going to have Tammy show up. Tammy was Sarah Paulson's character. Okay. Just because with, with um, Ocean's 8, like it has Ocean backstory, but it doesn't have as much of the sense that they've known each other for a long time. Yeah. And also there is age differences. Like it wouldn't make sense for Debbie to know Mindy Kaling's character because yeah. Mindy Kaling's character, I'm pretty sure would be like five at this point. <laughs> Talking about some enfant terrible at that point. Yes. Um, so then I'm also going to have a bit role for uh, Livingston Dell, and he was the surveillance and electronics guy. Yeah. Because B- Basher was like hardware, Livingston Dell was more like software. And I feel like the- he does need to show up for a little bit just because they don't really have any other computer people they could call in at this point yeah, in time. And this is still like you're putting it in the early 80s, so computers weren't what they are now. Yeah, but th- that would also mean that they don't have experience with them. Yeah. So, like, if they. Well, they're going to be robbing a museum specifically in this okay. movie. And so when they're like like planning the heist and they find out, oh, they just installed this new security sy- computerized security system, we literally have no basis on how to deal with this. We have to go find someone that we don't know. Like we have to recruit a new person. Yeah. And so they grab Livingston Dell for like five minutes and he can do 80s hacking, which is <laughs> even more... <laughs> That's even more unrealistic than 90s hacking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All the retro screens that are, like, black with green writing Absolutely, on it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. It, oh, it'd be, like, it'd be even worse than that scene from Jurassic Park where it's like, this is a Unix system. I know this. Oh, yeah. Man, computers have come such a long way. Like, I remember when I was in kindergarten and the first computers I ever encountered were, like, um, they were still, like, the old beige boxes and they had like the modem i guess right underneath it yeah all super chunky from like the late 80s yeah and they made loud hums yeah and if you held your hand in front of them you could feel the static coming off of them (laughs) and if you waved your hand in front of them it loaded faster (laughs) then along came the apple computers with like the see-through sides that were multicolored and i think everybody would try and sync up turning them on in the computer labs so <laughs> you would get like one giant ah uh... <laughs> shake the windows yeah you know sometimes that happens at work with the self-serve tills oh <laughs> they'll the timing works out just right and they all four of them will be finished at once and like with just a slight echo it's just like thank you for shopping here today and i'm just like oh my god is this the voice of god <laughs> <laughs> Give the voice of God and the Prince of Egypt a run for its money. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, the barn equivalent of the burning bush is just a self-serve till that spontaneously combusts. <laughs> I pay good money to see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, who else do we have? 
Um, I want to put Bernie Mac's character into this because otherwise this is a really white cast. Yeah. And we, so many other places we can do race bending, race lifting, yeah. but because I want this to fit into the continuity of the movies, yeah. we, we don't have a lot of wiggle room and I don't want to introduce characters that don't have a reason to be there. Like yeah. I want all the major characters, bar a few of them, to be people we've already met in the yeah. Oceans movies. Yeah, this is their origin story, so we need a lot of familiarity. That's the word. Mm -hmm. La, la, la. And tragically, the Oceans, the original Oceans trilogy had a lot of white guys. It it had Don Cheadle, it had Bernie Mac, and it had uh, the amazing Yen, whose real name is Xiaobokin. So that was really all they had. Yeah. And then with Oceans 8, they got uh, pretty decently better because they had Minnie Kaling, they had Aquafina, and they had Rihanna. Yeah. But again, like all three of those characters are going to be too young to show up in this. Mm-hmm. So I may do with what wiggle room I can. Yeah. And I imagine because Bernie Mac, he was um, he was a blackjack dealer. Yeah. In the original movies. Yeah. I imagine here he would be someone who's been in the con game for a little bit. He would probably be like um, Derek Ocean's protege kind of. Yeah. Because that is another thing I like is that by the time we get to Ocean's Eleven, you get the sense that they all kind of know each other. If not personally, then at least they know each other by reputation. Yeah. And, like, the reason why Matt Damon's character, Linus, got recruited was because his dad was a major thief. Yes, and his dad is going to be in this, too. Okay. Not as a major character, I don't... Actually, no, actually, I think I can. Now that I think about it, I probably could make him a... not Maybe not major character, but a more important character. Because I think, before, I was just going to have him be a cameo. Yeah. Well, let's look up Matt Damon's age. Okay, so... Oh, he's too young. Yeah, he'd be he'd be like ten years old. Yeah, ten. Yeah, I, I checked several ages. Yeah, I found out that Kate Blanchett is like pretty young, actually. Yeah. Yeah, she's forty nine, and everyone else is into their fifties. Wait, how old's Helena? Oh, you could have Helena Bonham Carter's character. I can't actually because um, in Ocean's Eight, it is established that this is like her first heist. Oh, okay. Yeah, but like age wise, she would fit right in. Yeah, we there there could be a because her whole shtick is that she's a fashion designer. Yeah, and when they find her in Ocean's Eight, she's kind of washed up. Okay, and so but there could be like a cameo where it's like, uh no, Debbie's looking through a magazine and it's like the latest designs by Rose, whatever her name was. I can't, I forgot her name um, tragically. Or you said that this is going to be a museum heist, so you could have her um, at the museum drawing sketches. Oh, I could do that. Yes. Um. Oh yeah, and then the final most important teen is Tess. Yes. Because this is also going to be where Danny first meets Tess. Aww. So here's, oh yeah, I have no idea how the casting is going to work out. The only possible names I wrote down, um, Tom Hiddleston, maybe as a young Willie Banks. Okay. Who was Al Pacino. Yeah. But then I got home and I Googled it and I don't know if Tom Hiddleston actually looks like a young Al Pacino. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Um, But then because I had written down a Tom, I wrote down Tom Holland as maybe Rusty. Okay, and he's pretty good with accents, so... Yes. And it's not like Matt Damon, or not Matt Damon, uh, Brad Pitt has a very specific accent, so... Yeah, because um, yeah, it is hard to think of the casting, because I'm not going to say there's no one like that, like this kind of people, but they do have this very kind of like suave, jazz age uh, elegance to them, yeah, the cast. Well, Even, I mean, Ocean's 8 is a bit grittier amongst all the ladies, yeah. but they still have this kind of like poise in the way they carry yeah, themselves. that coolness to them. Yeah, I'm not saying that the younger actors of our generation don't have that, it's just I can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah, and honestly that comes with, you know, age and experience too. Mm-hmm. And besides, this is going to be set in 1980. Nineteen eighty. It's how do I describe the eighties? The eighties are not like cool and elegant. The eighties are like everybody is running on cocaine. This is true, and this is eighties Vegas. Yeah, so it's going to be kind of gross. Yeah, and this there's also these are not upper class kids. Like that's the thing. Another thing I noticed when trying to like formulate the atmosphere of this origin story is that you really get the sense that all of these career criminals that we see in the movies they're not really in it for the money most of the time yeah because a lot of them when we find them they're in between odd jobs or they're like just trying to pass the time they're kind of whiling the hours away they 
The only time we see them spend really extravagantly is at the beginning of 12. Yeah. And that, to me, says that this is the biggest payout they've ever gotten. Before, it was either they only got a little bit, like enough to live off of, or they were just doing it for the thrill. Yeah. And so that's the thing, is that a lot of these people do it for the thrill, which does kind of make it funny when every single movie, there's someone who's like, now remember, don't let your emotions get in the way, even though every single heist they do is driven by emotions. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, the only reason why you're going after this one Terry Benedict dude is because you don't like him. Exactly. I was toying with the idea of putting Terry in here, but I realized there wasn't really a spot for him to show up. Yeah. Maybe he could show up in Ocean Second. Yeah, as some young, up-and-coming corporate exec of some sort. Yeah. There could be, like, a name drop, because I do have Ruben. Ruben is going to be a main character as well. Yeah. He's like the only adult that's really on their side at the beginning. Of course. And he and because Danny's like Okay, actually let's let's get into the plotty bits of it. Yeah. Basically, the movie opens up, we establish Danny and Debbie and Rusty and Lou, and they're kind of like foursome, how they're just, they're not doing big heists, obviously. They're just running small cons. Like, uh, Debbie is doing some pickpocketing casually, yeah. and Rusty is the kind of person who, like, he does the change stuff, he's like, uh, here's a 10, like, oh no, I've got this, and now you give me this, and you give me this, yeah. and just, he ends up with, like, getting a $50 bill when he only gave you a 20. Yeah. And so they're doing their stuff. Meanwhile, we've got Derek Ocean, who is doing big heists, and I'm not sure what he's robbing at the beginning, but it's him and a partner, and they're doing this whole thing, and then the cops show up, and the partner is gone, just in the wind, and Derek gets arrested, and all of a sudden, Danny Ocean is like, gets the call that his dad has been arrested, and he's like, I don't know how to deal with this, because we've all been taught to never get arrested, and we've all been pretty good at this so far, Mm -hmm. and so he kind of gets stuck in this funk of not sure what to do, and... I imagine that the partner of Derek Ocean would have been a family friend. Yeah. So there's also that sense of betrayal. But I was also thinking, toying with the idea that maybe the partner was Saul. Okay. Because there's a line in the first movie where Ruben says, this sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you, done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, he better not know you're involved, not know your names or think you're dead because he'll kill you and he'll then he'll go to work on you. So I do kind of like the idea that it's Saul who backstabs Derek Ocean, and but it's just like kind of a thing to get a payout. And then when the others turn against Saul, then that's just them whacking him back. And he's like, okay, good on you, kids. Something like that. Okay. But on the flip side, that doesn't necessarily play into the kind of relationship that he has with the rest of the group in the later movies. So maybe we should just let that idea die. Yeah. Yeah, I was just looking up some um, big-time robberies that have happened, uh, listed bank robbers and robberies, and I was thinking for a moment, maybe we could tie Derek into something like um, the Lufthansa heist of uh, 72, but then I'm like, nah, that's involving gangsters, and people started spending too much money, that's why they started getting whacked. Who's to say that the Ocean family isn't involved with the mob? Yeah, it would make sense, actually. Because keep in mind, this is also, this is the movie that ends with everyone shaking Sinatra's hand. Yeah. And if Sinatra's there. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the entire franchise was a remake of of a movie from the 60s involving the Rat Pack, so. Called Ocean's Eleven. Called Ocean's Eleven. Exactly. Starring Frank Sinatra as Danny Ocean. Awesome. We've come full circle. (laughs) Yeah, well, that, because that ties back into the line from Ocean's Thirteen, where it's this whole code of honor between all these uh, career criminals in Vegas, where it's like, you shook Sinatra's hand, you should know better. Yeah. And that's why they all go after Willie Banks when he backstabs Ruben. Yeah. I love me some good Ocean's Universe lore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe also mention like a few rules about pulling off one of these heists, like, um, don't fucking spend your money right away. Yeah. And maybe they do mention the Lufthansa heist because one of the guys got whacked because he started spending so much money immediately. Um, I can find that particular guy. Uh, I'll come back to you with it, but yeah, it... It was like, you are a fucking idiot. Okay. Yeah. So Derek is in prison 
And so the foursome are trying to figure out how to get him out. And they're like talking to the arresting officer in the FBI, because if Derek goes to prison, he's not just going to prison for this one job. He's like, this could tie him into all of these other jobs. Yeah. So they need to get him out. They need to get the charges dropped so that they can't hold him, so that they can't start charging with other stuff and connecting him with stuff. Yeah. So because the arresting officer, he's one of those like friendly FBI guys who like knows the family. And he's like, okay, I'll give you one week to try and find a way to clear your father's name. Yeah. And Danny's like, okay, one week. What can we hit in one week that would somehow allow us to post bail or find some, just some way to get dad out? Yeah. And they're basically, it's like, if we can post bail, then dad can skip town, lie low, and then come back later. And bail is set at like a million dollars because they don't want him and out. And probably in cash too. Yeah. So that's when they start trying to find other people and scoping out the museum. Yeah. So they track down Livingston to deal with some computer stuff. Yeah. They track down Basher to deal with all the hardware en- engineering stuff. Yeah. And then they also find Tammy from Oceans 8, who she, in Oceans 8, she's the person you go to to find the stuff that fell off the back of a truck. And she's also kind of their undercover person. Mm-hmm. And so they get Tammy, who is like just starting out as her own con woman, yeah. to be basically their inside woman yeah. at the museum. And while she's working there, she meets Tess, who is also interning at the museum. Of course. And the reason they're hitting this museum is because it's also owned by the partner, or it's run by the partner, yeah. who, pff, I don't know, I don't know. What the par- we'll just keep calling him the partner. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're hitting the museum to see if they can fi- steal something that they can then fence and post bail with, or at the very least, try and find some evidence connecting the partner to the crime so that they can clear Derek's name. Yeah. So while they're planning this whole heist, they're going through all the stages, you've got... Rusty is the guy who knows people. So Rusty's probably the one who cont- he like he's heard about what Tammy's doing. He's heard about what Basher's doing when he's in town. Yeah. And he's like, okay, let's get this little club together. Cool. They probably rope in Bernie Mac's character. Uh, where is he? Frank. <laughs> they rope in Frank to be someone who helps them out a little bit. But he doesn't show up a lot because they they're kids and he's well into his career. He doesn't want people to be like paying too much attention to him. Yeah. Especially when he's associating with the Oceans, who are known criminals. Yeah. (laughs) Even if they've managed to keep their records fairly clean, like, they've been associated with crimes, but no one's ever been formally charged. Yep. They've probably been picked up a few times by the cops for being in places where they're not supposed to be because you're teenagers. Why are you over here and it's like three in the morning? And that's the thing, is like, because they're really young, they can't be sneaking around at night. This has to be a daytime heist. Yeah. So now here's the problem. I have no idea what they would be trying to steal. Okay. Uh, it's a museum. It's in Vegas. Uh, Vegas is basically since day one has been a mob city. It's been a really sleazy, glamorous city. I know I use those two words in the same sentence, but it, it, it is glamorous on some level. It works for Vegas. Yeah, it's the Vegas glam, which means like, <laughs> you don't think too much about what has gone on in your bed yeah (laughs) (laughs) just assume that all the cocaine has been done in your room and as much as the staff has tried they're never gonna get those blood stains out of the floor (laughs) (laughs) so what came to my mind because they are rare and they are collector's items and there are stuff that people would pay lots of money for would be original Fabergés made for the Russian imperial family. Ooh. Yeah, the Fabergé eggs. And there's a few that are missing. Well, okay, on the one hand, they did try to steal a Fabergé egg in Ocean's 12. But on the other hand, that would be a nice call forward. Yeah. Because, see, in Ocean's 12, they didn't just decide, hey, let's steal a Fabergé egg. A cha- they were challenged by another thief, and he was like, if you can steal the egg before I can steal the egg, then I'll pay all your debts to Terry Benedict, and you don't have to worry about him killing you. Yeah. So it could, we could tie that in and make it look like, oh, he picked that because he knows it's personal for Ocean, because it was his first job. Yeah, yeah, because the the other thief in Ocean's 12 probably has studied uh, Danny Ocean. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's this whole, it's like this global community of honorable thieves who are in it for the thrill rather than the money. Oh my god, I just had an idea. Can we somehow, like, tie all of this into, like, um, Arsene Lupin? Say that he's real? Okay, we can somehow make this work. I I don't know the, okay, here's the thing. I had 24 hours (laughs) to figure out the the nitty gritty details of this. (laughs) Um, We can put a pin in it. 
and we'll save it for later. But like, we will find a way well, to no, get. No, because here I can't, I can't. I don't know the like the super duper details, but that could work because basically, this might end up being a short episode. <laughs> So, because they're going to go through the whole heist. They have to do it in daylight. They have to make it look like it's a school trip or something. Yeah. And keep the girls who are undercover and whoever's undercover, like, unimplicated from it. Yeah. And But basically, it ends, it looks like it's gone wrong. It ends because it looks like it's gone wrong um, because the partner showed up at the museum and he wasn't supposed to. Yeah. Supposedly. Supposedly. And then, so, like, Danny and Debbie have to run out of there, and they've just, like, they've got the egg and whatever other goodies they got, and they have to have them in duffel bags. They're not even pretending. They're just basically flaunting it and running out the front door. (laughs) They jump into the car. They're running. There's a whole police chase. The police are chasing them through Vegas. Meanwhile, like, we get quick clips to the other characters who are, like, trying to just do cleanup and make sure their parts are finished and they're not being noticed as doing something suspicious. Yeah. Finally, Danny and Debbie are caught, and they're caught just outside the partner's house. Yeah. And then as things unfurl, and Danny and Debbie are brought in for questioning, and we find out that Danny and Debbie are telling the cops, or FBI, whatever authorities, telling them that they had been tasked by the partner to steal the stuff from his own museum as an insurance fraud, and if he did that, then he would release the damning evidence that would clear their father's name. Yeah. So maybe I should change them ages. Maybe I should make them both minors. Yeah. Um, Because then they can't be charged with anything, and then it seems more like then the partner would be charged with endangering a minor or something like that. So make it, say, 1978-ish, so we can get 70 sleaze instead of 80 sleaze. Yes. Well, I wanted to. I picked 1980 just because that was when uh, Sinatra started a new residence at the Gold Nugget Casino. Oh, okay. That was like when he started coming out of retirement again, basically. Yeah. So we could change the character ages. Yeah, we can change the character ages and yeah. Yeah, so this is the story that Danny and Debbie are telling the feds. And the partner's like, these kids are lying. They're just making it up. And then the feds are like, okay, well. There's enough credible evidence that we should be able to get a warrant and search. But if you have nothing to hide, then you don't need to resist. <laughs> and then they find all of this fabricated evidence that the that has been the main job of the group this whole yeah. time. It wasn't even the theft. It was making sure that the partner was distracted enough that they could plant all this evidence of him collaborating with the two Ocean siblings. Yeah. To make it look like he was the mastermind the whole time. And it helps that he is involved in some of Derek Ocean's heists, and so they can just take evidence that will point at him and just kind of scooch it, just kind of nudge it, so it points at this other guy instead. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that works. And then it can end, like, it ends with the partner going to jail, Derek is free, and Derek Ocean is like, you two kids, that was the most stupid, dangerous thing you've ever done. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Great job. And then we'll find out that the main fed that they were talking to, it was Linus's father all along, actually. Okay. And then we have, a, like, a flash forward a few months where the whole crew has gathered to, like, they've got backstage patches, passes to meet Frank Sinatra after his grand opening at the Golden Nugget. Okay. <laughs> or or just after one of his, after one of his performances, because I don't know yeah. when he opened. Maybe it's even into 1981. They're, they've got the backstage passes, and they're meeting Frank Sinatra, and they're all like, oh, so Mr. Sinatra, you're such a cool guy. They're all shaking his hand, and you've got, like, Claire de Lune playing in the background, because that's the theme of the franchise. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't be an Ocean's movie without it. Exactly. Okay. Um, so Sinatra, let's see, in 1982, he signed a $16 million three-year deal with the Golden Nugget of Las Vegas. Kelly okay. notes that... By this period, Sinatra's voice had grown darker, tougher, loamier, but he continued right. to captivate audiences with his immutable magic. Okay, it must have been a few years off. Well, in that case, we could take the setting year back a bit, because I think he had a different residence before the Golden Nugget. Okay. Um, um... Yeah, he was still performing at Caesars in 1979. Okay. So we could say that it takes place in, like, 1978? Yeah. Which would make sense, and also make uh, the Danny and Debbie a bit younger, so... Yeah, so, like, Danny... The oldest characters would be 17, and yeah. then Debbie would be, like, 15. Yeah. So then maybe maybe the relationship between Debbie and Lou shouldn't be as explicit. Yeah. Because 15 and 17 it's is weird. a lot more yeah. iffy than, like, 17 and 19. Yeah. Make it cl- Have it just be Debbie has a crush on Lou. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it ends with Ruben and Rusty and Danny. They're like on a balcony talking and they're like, give Ruben his share of the takings from it. And Ruben's like, um, if you guys are ever interested in something, I have another uh, business opportunity coming up. And they're like, oh, what, what is it? And he's like, well, have you ever been to Belize? <laughs> and that's where the movie ends. <laughs> because, once again, we come all full circle because of that lie in the first movie where Ruben's like, I owe you guys still from the thing with the guy in the place. And Rusty just goes, yeah, I'd never been to Belize before. <laughs> Excellent. I love, her prequel. Actually- I love her prequel callback. Yes. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, and I did find the one guy who got whacked in that um, Lufthansa heist. So this is actually from 1978. Uh, Where was he? Louis Cafora, who died in March of 1979. Downtown Brooklyn parking lot owner and money launderer. Cafora had been a Burke cellmate during his time in prison and was contracted by Burke. Uh, This is uh, Billy Burke, or Jimmy Burke, the guy who masterminded this Lufthansa heist uh, Mm -hmm. to launder some of the money from the heist through his collection of legitimate lots. Kafora's indiscreet gaudy lifestyle and insistence on informing his wife, Joanna, about gang business, including (laughs) the heist, eventually led to Burke's ordering both to be murdered. Within days of the heist and against Burke's orders, Kafora bought his wife a custom pink Cadillac Fleetwood with his share of the heist and brazenly drove it to a meeting just blocks from the JFK cargo center where the FBI was still investigating. His body was never found. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, at that point, you kind of deserve it. Yeah, RIP in peace, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so if Lufthansa took place in 1978, we could even say that, like, we could say that Derek planned this heist that happens in Oceans First to happen at the same time. Yeah. Because he knew, like, he knew those guys. He's like, they're doing this big heist, so we can do this other heist. And all the cops will be distracted. Yeah, they could be targeting Lufthansa while Derek and his partner are targeting, say, Air France or um, I don't know if Pan Am was still around by that time. Or just like a bank or something. Yeah. Or like um, the only rule for this is no casinos. Yeah, no casinos. Because in the lo- I don't know if this is realistic, but in the lore of the Ocean's universe, there's never been a successful casino robbery in Vegas. Yeah. And they outline it at the very beginning why all of them have failed. Yeah. Then again, most of those that they point out were like very brazen, just like taking chips or cash yeah. and running out the front door. Maybe there have been good casino heists before and they just never found out about them. Yeah. Because there are casinos in other places other than Las Vegas. Cough, cough, Monte Carlo, cough, cough. Yeah. Like even just in other places in the States. Yeah. Like. I mean, Atlantic City. Yeah. Maybe not as prolific as the Vegas casinos, but especially by the 2000s, there's plenty in all city. Deadwood, even. Yeah. Christ, you could have someone whose entire theft career starts with knocking over VLTs over in, I don't know, what's a real small town? Um, Minot? <laughs> <laughs> they go down for the state fair <laughs> and just knock over a whole bunch of VLTs. All that cow money. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else did I have? Oh, yeah. So with the Danny and Tess romance. Yeah. So part of the reason it's going to start, like, it starts off with Tess. Like, oh, this is Danny. He's kind of this weird bad boy. And then she's like, oh, he's an actual, like, from a family of career criminals trying to become a career criminal himself. I probably yeah. shouldn't interact with him. Oh, but damn, he's so charming. And he's played by the modern equivalent of a young George Clooney. Yeah. He's just going to get better with age. I mean... Honestly, Zone, I don't think George Clooney is all that. He's sort of gone down in a few years. I, I'm not saying he's unattractive. I just, he's very generic. Yeah. I i think why a lot of people really find him attractive is more of the actual personal charm. Like, if you just saw the photographs, sense. it's like, eh, kind of a good looking older guy. He's charming, and that's why he's able to get away with playing the same character over and over again. Yeah. My mom said it perfectly. George Clooney only ever plays George Clooney. Yeah. But there's a lot of actors out there like that. This is true. But I think it really stands out with George. Yeah. But that's also a very North American thing. Like over in Europe, you want to be more of a character actor. You actually Mm -hmm. want to become somebody else. Yeah. That's also kind of the point of acting. It's just like, 
when you get a, when you get to actors who like the roles are just written for them, like uh, Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, like she's she's pretty good at what she does, but every Melissa McCarthy movie is the same at this point. Yeah, because it's just like Melissa McCarthy plays Melissa McCarthy, and she walks in, she does Melissa McCarthy stuff. Yeah, and the only reason it was lessened in Ghostbusters is because we had other people doing their own stuff too. Yeah, and it worked, but still. Yeah, and with George Clooney, like. Actually, probably with Melissa McCarthy too. Actually, the two of them they get so much, so many accolades for playing these samey roles that it really does stand out the fact that the roles are so samey. Yeah. Like I think Danny Ocean is the only role George Clooney's played where I genuinely like the character. Yeah, and then you compare him to say Leonardo DiCaprio, who can he doesn't physically transform himself except for Revenant, but like just personality-wise, he can really transform himself. Well, that's because he was trying to come at that Oscar from every angle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It took him a while. Probably because the Academy is like, oh yeah, we still remember you from when you were Jack in Titanic. Yeah. And for some reason, that's unforgivable because it was a popular movie. <laughs> and the be- the Oscar for popular movie goes to Titanic. Ugh. <laughs> Who cares about what the plebes think? Gag me with a spoon. Yeah. Hey, Kate Kate Blanchett was in Titanic, wasn't she? Uh, no, I think that was, uh, Kate Winslet. Oh my god, that's like three letters off. (laughs) I know. And it doesn't help that they're both redheads, and, okay, Kate Blanchett's actually from Australia, but, like... Hang on, I have to write down something in my notes. Uh, okay. Parent. Trap. (laughs) Remake. (laughs) With Kate Blanchett <laughs> and Kate Winslet. <laughs> just just create more confusion. Exactly. Oh. Um, anyways, so the, uh, the Danny test flirtation going on. Uh, basically, he finds out that she likes working at the museum because of the art and the culture. But she doesn't really like the guy who owns the museum, the partner, because she knows that there's some stuff that he keeps for himself just in his flat. And he and she doesn't like that he's keeping it the rest of the world and the rest of the people from appreciating it. Like the reason she loves museums is because you have these wonderful, fantastic works of art worth millions of dollars. And you can allow the common people to come in and just look at them and experience them on the same level as a stupid rich person. Yeah. And the guy who runs the museum is a stupid rich person. Yeah. So basically, uh, at the end of the movie, she is delivered a package containing one of those pieces that she d- said he was keeping for himself. Yeah. It's like something that he would have lifted. Because, of course, at some point in the movie, that we show them inside the partner's apartment. Yeah. We flashback and we see him taking that and wrapping it up and sending it to Tess. Yeah. So that Tess can be the one who finds it and is like, oh my gosh, I just happened across this item that had been taken by the museum director and so she gets a little reward and she gets the um, the that clout for yeah. being able to find it and helping like advance the museum stature in light of this thing because she is able to restore it to not in its former glory but she's able to give it a piece back and so they really like her for that basically yeah she also shows up at the Sinatra show because Danny also, obviously, he also sends her tickets. Yeah, of course. So she shows up and she's like, you stole that for me. And he's like, well, I stole it for you so you could give it to the museum. And she's like, ah, you get me. <laughs> and a ship is born. Yes. Because Tess, Tess has a type. Yeah. And it is bad boys. <laughs> bad boys who do have a heart. Yes. And that so she finds out later, of course, that... Danny has the heart. Terry Benedict did not. Yeah. yeah. Sucks to be you, Terry. I know. Especially when he was forced to go onto Oprah and donate all that money. <laughs> that scene is still my favorite. Where they're watching Oprah and they start crying. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you give all that money to Charity? I just... I love children so much. <laughs> Yeah, this really feels like it's going to be one of our shorter episodes. Do you have any of anything else you can add to it? Um, so it's definitely going to be like late seventies. Yeah, so, late seventies. Okay, I would say I would say seventy eight is a good time to put it at. Yeah. So, um, on the production side, it's probably getting like an accurate 
recreation of Vegas at the time because a lot of stuff has changed. Yeah. So recreating that and making the inside of these casinos and hotels kind of their late 70s glory. All of that orange. (laughs) Yes. There's got to be scenes where the kids just walk in and start playing blackjack. Yeah. Just cigarette smoke everywhere. Yeah. Like it billows out of the doors. (laughs) (laughs) And okay, what sort of rating would we be aiming for? Like a PG-13? PG-13. Like same. Yeah. This this is the movie that we want teens to go see so that they themselves can be inspired to do crimes (laughs) against stupid rich people. Do it, children. Do it. There's another line from Ocean... You you should watch Ocean's 8. Like, you probably have the same problems I had with it, but I think you'd also really appreciate it. Yeah. But there is a line in there where Debbie's giving, like, the rousing speech, and she says, you're not doing this for me. You're not doing this for you. Somewhere out there, there there's an eight-year-old girl lying in her bed dreaming of becoming a criminal. (laughs) We're doing this for her. (laughs) Inspiring all future cat burglars. Um, Precisely. Anyway, oh yeah, maybe we should try and figure out how we're gonna fit in Arsène Lupin into our Ocean's universe. Oh right. Well, I wasn't thinking Arsène Lupin explicitly, yeah. but I was thinking they pull in Arsène Lupin, and like the reason that the partner shows up, I can't, I'm not sure how exactly this fits into their plot, but the partner can show up at the museum because they sent him a letter like, "Hey, bro, we're robbing you." Yeah, yeah. Because the best thing about Arsène Lupin is he's like. Hello, I'm here to steal from you. And oh, is that a fake over there? Maybe I should look into that. (laughs) (laughs) I elementary better put Lupin in the next season. Yeah, and also because Maurice Leblanc tried to have a uh, crossover that one time with um, Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay, Doyle might have been going through one of his like, oh, Sherlock, I don't want to write another Sherlock story phases. So then didn't he put in Herlock Sholmes? Yeah. And then when he get around to Lupin the Third, uh, who was it? Uh, Zenigata? I think it's supposed to be the Sherlock Holmes there. Inspector Zenigata? I've never seen any of Lupin. I'm sorry. Okay. I've only seen uh, the Castle of Cagliostro because that's the one directed by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's on Netflix. Okay. Yeah, maybe for Ocean Second, we can have something to do with Arsène Lupin explicitly. Yeah, just another shout-out or some sort of trying to fit at least someone who's kind of like him into the universe. Mm-hmm. Well, we also, in in the second movie, we have, um, what was his name? Lamarck. Yeah. Who is the, another legendary French cat burglar. Yeah. So maybe we can like have tie him in and have him be... Trained by someone who is trained by Lupin. Yeah, I'm kind of now like, Lamarck should have had like a different nickname to maybe maintain. Well, a- he was the Night Fox and then he passed okay. it on to Tulur. Okay, yeah. So it does kind of fit with an animal theme I was thinking of because Lupin means the wolf. Yes, the wolf, the fox, the Pomeranian. Don't underestimate a Pomeranian. (laughs) I am the thief that yips in the night. (laughs) Part of my cuteness. (laughs) I bet any Pomeranian could come into a museum, steal everything, and nobody would stop it. Yep. That's just, that's, no, scrap it, scrap everything I just said. Ocean's first, Ocean, Daniel Ocean just puts, unleashes a bunch of Pomeranians into a casino while everyone's distracted. He just goes around and gathers up all the money. Release the puppies. Yep. All the good boys and girls. Uh, Anyway, where are we at? We are actually over the one hour mark. Hooray, that's probably long enough to call an episode unless you can think of anything else to add. Um, let's see. 70s cheese. We're going to have to find an actor for Sinatra who can sing like Sinatra or just have a recording somewhere. What if he was played by George Clooney? Yes. That it, again, it's full circle. It's all a circle, just like the letter O. <laughs> the circle of theft. <laughs> yes. The circle of crime. <laughs> it's like the the karmic the karmic cycle of gentlemen thieves. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, if we said it in 1978, where did I see that one thing? Oh, 1979. For, like, the denouement. Uh, the denouement! <laughs> so, um... During a party at Caesars in 1979, Sinatra was awarded the Grammy Trustees Award while celebrating 40 years in show business and his 64th birthday. That year, former President Gerald Ford awarded Sinatra the International Man of the Year Award, and he performed in front of the Egyptian pyramids for Anwar Sadat, which raised more than $500,000 for Sadat's wife's charities. So, I don't know, we could probably... For the denouement fit one of those performances. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah. The performance well, in front of the Egyptian pyramids. <laughs> that was actually in Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> so that'd be a bit of a stretch. So we can do the, the Grammy Trustees Award. Yes. Because that would be less less celebrities and more like a bl- just black tie business people, I yeah. imagine. And it's probably over in LA, which isn't that far from Las Vegas. Yeah. Like we're talking about maybe a day, a day's drive. America's tiny. Well, compared to us. America's tiny like ant. <laughs> I still love it. Canada's when... strong and large like moose. <laughs> I still love it when Europeans come over and they're kind of like just awestruck by how big Canada is. <laughs> <laughs> There's one Tumblr post that's been going around and it's... A person complaining about Americans thinking that Britain is small, and they're like, "Why do why do British why do Americans think Britain is so small that I can just kip over to this village and th- th- and take all the time out of my day?" Blah 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 blah. And they're like, the immediate next reply is just a person superimposing the entirety of Texas over <laughs> all of Britain, <laughs> and they're just like. This is why, mate. <laughs> and then they point out the fact, like, the distance between the two places the OP was talking about is, like, 40 minutes. Yeah. That ain't like, far. There are people in America who have two-hour commutes to work. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Toronto. Okay. Part of it, too, is, like, the sheer traffic. But, like, to get yeah. in and out of the city can take, like, four hours one way. Toronto's a micronation. Yeah. I remember Dad uh, was saying, so back in the 80s, the West German Army used to send their tank guys over to Canada for training because a lot more space to do it. Yeah. He liked to joke that they liked to recreate the Battle of Kursk and figure out a way to defeat the Soviets once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, apparently he was over at Shiloh because Shiloh is like right in between Brandon and Clarny. And right. um, he was at Shiloh for whatever reason. And bunch of them are packing into a car and he's like so where are you going and they're like oh we are off to uh, go to toronto it it's only it isn't that far right and dad's <laughs> like toronto's like 24 hours if you don't sleep <laughs> <laughs> but an average human is only gonna do like it's gonna take a while yeah but brandon's only like 40 minutes that way. So, yeah, I think he went over to a bar over in Brandon. A bar in Brandon, which is not as fun as Toronto, but, like... You make do with what you get when you only have one Canadian settlement within eye view. (laughs) I remember reading this one book. It was about some part of Mongol history, and the guy who wrote it, he put in a footnote how in Mongolia they started complaining about how it's becoming overcrowding. And apparently overcrowding by Mongolian standards is being able to just make out your neighbor's gare on the horizon on a clear day. (laughs) For reference, Mongolia is about three times the size of Texas and has a population of three million. Dang. Yeah. Remember that one time when they managed to conquer most of the known world? Oh, yeah. The good old days. The good old days. With the Mongols. (laughs) They weren't that bad of overlords. As long as he surrendered. 100th episode idea. We reboot the Mongol Empire. Yes. I'm down for that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to add to Oceans First? Um, I think we make a bunch of references to a whole bunch of other heists that happened in the 1970s. I, I want to say that there was also this one art heist over in Boston about that time, but I'm not too sure if I got the decade right. I know it was either the 70s or 80s, though. Well, as long as they didn't happen after it's set, yeah, they can just be name-dropping them. Yeah. 
Like, uh, oh, can we do this thing that they're trying this high? No, no, it doesn't work with this. But oh, but we could do it like this. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, we can do it like that. Just rapid fire reference. Uh, what went right? What went wrong? How can we imply this? Mm-hmm. There also, there has to be a lot of scenes of them screwing up because this yeah. is their first time doing it. Yeah. And so they're, they're going to do have a lot of goofs. Yeah. And on top of that, they're working with late 70s tech. So exactly. this is also going to be a pretty low tech heist. There's going to be a lot of, they would have security cameras so they can do camera spoofing. Yeah. But there'd have to be a lot of misdirection and Batman gambits. Yeah. Uh, like people are doing what you expect them to do and you can plan around their personalities. Yeah, so we could have them staking out this museum for a while, like um Well no, because they only have like a week. Okay. Oh, but we could uh that can be like Debbie's main thing is that she's a really quick planner and yeah. she grasped details really quickly because yeah. in Oceans Eight she talks about how she plan had been planning the Met Gala heist for the past five years, eight months, like her entire prison sentence. Oh wow. As soon as she went in, she started planning the Met Gala heist and yeah. she had it down to a science three years in. Nice. And that's having to deal with a lot of complicated stuff yeah. and having to account for things changing like yeah. every six months based on technolo- technological upgrades. Yeah. So this is her in a week. She probably could really quickly figure out the like roots of security officers yeah. and camera spaces and all that stuff within like two days, not even. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah, there's probably going to be security cameras, but they... This is the late 70s, so first of all, they're going to be expensive for a museum, so they're probably going to be, like, very widely spaced. Like, actually, not a lot of people really, when it comes to protecting historical stuff, unless it was, like, super, super important stuff, they tended to not really be on the ball that often as you'd think. Well, we could say if it's a... If it's own this one director, he's the partner, is the stupid rich guy, yeah. he could have the cameras up there for his sake. Yeah. Because he's he's not doing it to protect the historical value. He's prote- doing it to protect what's his. Yes. He's like, this is my art. These are my artifacts. Yeah. I stole them fair and square. <laughs> yeah. So we do that. We do research into the technology because we weren't there. So we wouldn't know what to do. Like that's like Livingston only has to show up for like five minutes to be like, uh, computers, tippity tappity type. Yep. They're just boxes of magnets right now. We don't have to do anything super special. Yeah, they have barely gone out of the whole computers the size of rooms that we have to keep super cold. Yeah. And now we're down to about the size of my hand. Yep. If not smaller by now. Who knows what the Chinese have developed. You can hold the entire history of the human race in the palm of your hand, and you can destroy it just by yeeting it across the room. (laughs) Just at one time, you go to use the toilet, and you accidentally drop it. I had a close call like that once. Yeah. I I caught it. I caught it by the tip. (laughs) And I lost a year off my life. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Oh, technology. Indeed. How much we have come to depend on you. And I know that some sort of spy agency is listening in on me. Hi, NSA. Sorry, intern Steve. (laughs) Steven! (laughs) Steven! Um, hey, Lindsay, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm on Twitter at LindsayM476. That's Lindsay with an A. And most of my social media bullshits are connected from there. Tanner, where can they find you? They can find me at SparkyUpsart on the internet, uh, on Twitter, the Twitter part of the internet. And you can also find me at SparkyYoungUpstart.tumblr.com on Tumblr.com. Um, what else? You can also follow this podcast itself, this very podcast you're listening to. You can follow us on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. You can also find us under Not If I Reboot You First, under Apple Podcasts, or in Podbean. Please remember to rate and review us. That really helps us find new viewers. Or you can just tweet about us at your friends. Yell at your family about these two weirdos who made an Ocean's prequel just because they could. (laughs) And if you want to email us about your uh, comments or your criticisms or your ideas for future reboots, then you can send those emails to notifyreboot at gmail.com. What is your hint for the next one? <laughs> um, how do you feel about a TV show about a clumsy, awkward girl who has hopeless crushes on cute, unattainable guys and teams up with her BFS to blow the ever-loving crap out of demons with their magical powers?
I am so here for this, Lindsay. <laughs> I'm very here for this. I can't wait. Yeah. I am I am psyched. This this your your next episode cannot come soon enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me going from being a fucking letdown. <laughs> yeah. But we'll okay, but we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. Um, so until next time, we will see you all later. Bye! Bye! I just saw some movement out of one of our neighbor's windows, and I'm like, what are they doing? Was it a rear window? (laughs) Really? Uh, You want me to remake uh, freaking Hitchcock? Do it. (laughs) Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it.